Sir Balper the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, on this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, joining me as he does 90% of Mondays, we'll say we'll say approximately 90% of Mondays, is Fangraphs Managing Editor uh, and Viceroy of Love, Dave Cameron. Uh, it has become a practice uh, during the introduction to Dave Cameron's appearances on Fangraphs Audio. It has become a practice to alert the reader, or sorry, to, to alert the listener uh, to how much baseball Dave Cameron is about to analyze. I said to Dave Cameron, well, we did a little bit differently this time. I said to Dave Cameron towards the end, I said, I said, do you have anything that needs to be said that has not been said? Uh, and here is what managing editor Dave Cameron replied. Here's how he replied. Now I think I have maybe said all that I have to say. Uh, so there it is. Everything that Dave Cameron needs to say or needs to have said, uh, he has said in, in, um, in what's to follow in the conversation that I and Dave Cameron had earlier on Monday. Part of that is discussing a one-pitch closer who is not Mariano Rivera. Part of that is discussing the Sabre Seminar uh, that is coming up in the August. Part of that is the discussing pitch framing, uh, um, the Sabermetric community's zeal for it, and what its future is, etc. But there is much more. There is much more. Really, if you imagine how much Dave Cameron thinks he needs to say, that's that's the exact amount. So there, that is. What is it? It is uh, Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor, as I say, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Pitch and it's good. Yeah. Now, um, when a person says this guy has one pitch and he's good, uh, I think it's pretty clear that the other pitcher uh, one is inclined to think of is um, Texas Rangers relief pitcher Corey Burns. Yes, that is the first name that comes to mind when you talk about one pitch relievers. Uh huh. Yeah, not Mariano Rivera. No, Mariano Corey Burns. So, so, all right. So, ha- having not. Uh, having only looked over the the piece, did you do you invoke Mariano Rivera's name in your Monday piece on Edward Mujica? Mujica. It's like the last of the Mujicans. Okay, right. Actually, it might be related. Is it possible? Well, we uh, we'll do research on that. Anyway, yeah. uh, do you invoke Mariano Rivera's name? I I do, but I mean, you know, not that I'm comparing. I mean, I'm comparing, but not necessarily that I think Edward Mujica is going to turn into Mariano Rivera, just that Rivera kind of shows template for uh, one-pitch relievers having very good careers, even though they, you know, theoretically, from a game theory standpoint, uh, shouldn't be able to do what they do. Right, and so, well, let's talk about Rivera for a second, right? Like, so he throws a cut fastball, and he throws it 95% of the time? Like 90, yeah. Okay, right, 90 uh, I guess, I mean, Kenley Jansen has approached that, perhaps. Is that a possibility? Yes, Kenley Jansen is another one-pitch kind of uh, uh, cut fastball specialist. But, I mean, I think Jansen is maybe a little bit more of a stuff guy than Mojica, so probably a, a little more similar to Rivera. Okay. Now, the thing with the cut fastball is um, it's you, you watch you, – you, uh, for me, I know, I watch hitters face it, and you you say to the hitter in your mind, you say, you know what pitch is coming. You yeah. know that it's going to be, what, low 90s, and yeah. you know that it's going to have this certain amount of break. Account yeah. for the break. But for, <laughs> for, what, for whatever reason, batters are, are unable, and these guys are very good batters, so 
Um, they're unable to do that. So you say there must be something about that pitch that short circuits the brain. Right. I mean, is that what, I mean, do, what, from, what do we know about that? Uh, what do you know about that that you could tell us? Just generally speaking, how does that short circuit the brain? Yeah, I, I mean, having never faced a cut fastball in my life, I think I don't, I can't really speak to my experience, but from what I generally understand of, of the cut fastball's movement, uh, it's just very difficult to determine whether it's a uh, cut fastball or a fastball until it's too late because the movement doesn't really show up until the hitter has already decided where to start swinging. So, like, the swing decision, I think, has to take place within 0.3, per second, 0.3 seconds approximately uh, of the ball leaving the pitcher's hand but the cutter has not yet identified itself of where it's going to go within those 0.3 seconds. So hitters are basically just guessing and saying, well, there's a the pitch that's going to come in this general direction. I'm going to swing, you know, assuming the ball is going to be here, but the cutter often doesn't go where the assumption is. Okay, the right. Ball, you know. Yeah. Now, some pitches work well, like, within the context, right? Like, we've seen right. – so to, to invoke another uh, great pitcher of the moment, you Darvish, right? You Darvish yeah. has a slow curveball. Yeah. And I think that you know, this is not also the case with every batter, but if he were to inform, um, you know, most major league batters, I'm about to throw my slow curveball. Yeah. That slow curveball would be hit with some frequency. <laughs> I think Joey Votto hit one in spring training that went like nine million feet. Right, and that's if you have, and I think that that was an instance, right? Did Darvish throw it for the second time in that plate appearance? Yeah, it was like two in a row. And yeah. The second time Votto just like took a batting practice swing and hits the moon. Right. So, but, but. But he, if he's throwing, like I think he throws like five or six of them a game, and they're spread out, and you know, I mean, we know that that the rest of his stuff is all power stuff, basically. Yeah. That's it's it's unfair when he's able to do it. So he gets uh, very awkward swings and misses. He gets called strikes with it just because. Um, it in that case, but in that case, that's a pitch that's working in the context of the rest of Darvish's repertoire. What we have with Rivera, uh, maybe Jansen to a lesser degree is a pitch where the pitcher's stating, I'm throwing this pitch, and it's not a question of context. It's a question of this pitch somehow is doing something to your, like, neurological circuiting. Right. I mean, I think there's also something to location. I mean, there was that awesome New York Times graphic a couple years ago on Rivera's cutter and kind of where they go, and he only locates them on the corners. Like, he, you just never see Mariano Rivera throw a pitch down the middle. And uh, so I think, well, you know, there's a... It's not just that this pitch moves in such a way, but it's also located in positions that is both very difficult to hit, but also likely to be called a strike. And I think, you know, in looking at the heat map that I put in in Mojica's, in the post about Mojica's kind of split changeup that he throws uh, primarily at this point, uh, you know, he, you know he's going to throw this thing down and away, and, you know, more down than away. He's not throwing it off the plate too often. It's kind of over the outside edge, at the knees or lower, he throws it in the strike zone enough that hitters have to swing at it. I mean, it's not a pitch that they can just let go and assume it's going to be called for a ball, but because of its movement, they just can't hit it. I mean, when it's falling down and away from you on the outer edges of the strike zone, uh, most hitters don't have the kind of, you know, plate coverage to be able to hit that pitch with any kind of authority. And so for a guy like Mujica who can just consistently spot, uh, you know, a, a breaking ball, basically, uh, down and away from hitters from both sides of the plate, that's a pretty dangerous weapon. So it's so we're calling this a, a split change. I, I know that some of these you know, they're all on a spectrum, right? I mean, what yeah. if you were to describe the pitch? It's sort of maybe other pitchers you've seen with a similar thing. What are, what are we looking at here? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you've seen Hisashi Iwakuma pitch, I think it's almost the exact same pitch that Iwakuma throws as his out pitch. And Iwakuma, I mean, he's not doing very well against Cleveland today, but he's had a, you know, a very good start to the season. Hey, Cameron, uh, Cameron, just to interrupt yeah. you, what about someone who hasn't forced themselves to watch a Mariners game this season? You know, Hisashi Iwakuma is worth watching even if you, you know, change the channels when the Mariners are hitting or, okay, okay. Uh, you know, but I, mean, I think that the, the split change is, um, you know, Tim Lincecum throws a, a kind of a power changeup that can basically be described as a splitter. Uh, Rich Harden had a, had a similar out pitch for a long time. Uh, the, the pitch classifications kept bouncing back and forth, whether it was a splitter or a changeup. Um, it's all basically the same pitch, and I think there's a decent amount of guys in baseball uh, kind of revitalizing this pitch specifically as an out pitch that works against both left-handed and right-handed hitters. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I was watching uh, Ubaldo Jimenez uh, this weekend, yeah. I believe, and I think that he yeah, is Also facing the Mariners. Right, that's true. Although he, Jimenez has been surprisingly good. I, I, think it's, uh, I guess we can look into the causes of that at a later date, but uh, his command is certainly better and it probably lets his other stuff play up. Now, what do you think it is about, though, uh, uh, Mujica's split change, which allows it... Now, you mentioned a couple things about his ability to command it. Is there anything specifically about the pitch which it would allow a pitcher to throw it really free of context? Or is he throwing his fastball enough that it that he can play the two off of each other? I mean, you know, it's not like, he's not to the Rivera extent where it's only... I mean, the, the one pitch thing like, is a little bit of hyperbole. I mean, even in May, uh, where he's expanded his, his usage of the breaking ball or the off-speed pitch... He's still throwing fastballs 30% of the time. So, you know, it's not that he never throws a fastball. Um, but I think, in general, he's throwing a fastball in two strike counts to get a swinging strike up outside of the zone. He's almost using his, uh, his four-seam fastball as, as an out pitch after he gets ahead with the, the splitter. So he's pitching backwards in some ways, where he'll go down and away, down and away, down and away, and then maybe up and in with a fastball and get a hitter to chase a pitch that's in the, the opposite corner of what he's been seeing. Uh, so I think, you know, it's not that Malik is, you know, warding in multiple pitches to fool hitters, uh, but he's got two pitches that work in very different ways, and, uh, you know, he's mixing them enough to where uh, both of them are giving hitters problems. What is a, a – this is a rather basic question, but I think it uh, deserves to be asked is, what is a hitter seeing with a, with a split changeup? What are the sort of effects of that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what we see generally with this type of pitch is a lot of, you know, vertical movement. So it doesn't necessarily move uh, that much side to side. I think, you know, maybe the one difference you could say between a split finger fastball and a changeup, you know, some changeups, especially the ones that are thrown, you know, in the low 80s or high 70s, have some fade to them where they'll really kind of dive away from hitters, uh, which makes them good as, you know, platoon pitches where, you can, you know, especially left-handers don't throw very hard. Uh, can kind of fade their changeup away from from hitters, uh, you know, right-handed hitters. Um, the split change is more of just a straight-up down downwards pitch where uh, it doesn't move that much side to side, but it has a, a lot of movement down. Uh, and if you can command it at the bottom of the strike zone, it, w- it essentially looks like a fastball at the knees, causing hitters to decide they need to swing at it. But by the time it gets there, it's actually a splitter or changeup at the ankles. So it's uh, we know that, that um, a number of guys use it. Certainly, uh, Mujica uses it. As a swing and miss pitch, does it also does it have a particular batted ball pro- profile that you know about, or uh, is this uh, I don't know. I mean, I think in general you want to throw this pitch at the bottom of the strike zone, uh, in part because there's not a lot of velocity. I mean, you don't see that many guys throwing you know the splitter slash changeup in, in the 90s. Uh, so if you get this pitch up in the strike zone, it's going to be you know 85 and tumbling into a hitter's wheelhouse. So I think what we see is almost everyone that throws one of these pitches aims it at the bottom of the strike zone, which means it gets a lot of ground balls. 
uh, you know, hitters are swinging over the top of it frequently. So even when they do make contact, they're likely to hit it on the ground. Uh, but I think if you if you elevate the pitch, it's not going to get a ground ball. If you leave it up, it's going over the wall. You um, actually, I was uh, reading over your uh, chat transcript from last week, I guess maybe. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> and uh, someone had asked you about Shelby Miller, right? Yeah. Um, and said, can Shelby Miller? Um, can he sustain his success with uh, with a two pitch approach? Of course, he throws a very good right. fastball and a very good curveball, and he's doing he's doing quite well, um, yeah. even in a starting role. Uh, there is a sort of rule of thumb, I guess we could call it, that a pitcher needs three pitches, and uh, you answered that by saying, well, um, on the one hand, perhaps, but really, you just need a pitch you could, pitches you can throw to both left and right handed batters. Um, yeah. You say Shelby Miller has that with just those two pitches. Now, I'm curious, is there? Um, what is the sort of state of the one pitch relief pitcher uh, in the, in the major leagues? Is there? Do you think that maybe it's it's frowned upon? Whereas there are guys who they have one out out type of pitch that would could be so dominant that it maybe uh, as an experiment it might make sense for them to pursue that. Yeah, I mean, I think what we see is generally one pitch relievers who get into the major league. Their one pitch is usually a high velocity fastball. I mean, it's not that unusual to see some, you know, kind of raw young kid get called to the majors because he throws 100 and strikes out a lot of guys in AAA. Uh, but then we, you know, hear, you know, oh, he needs to improve the secondary stuff and, you know, kind of the old cliche of anyone can hit a fastball in the major leagues if they know it's coming. And so that's why you need off-speed stuff in order to kind of keep them off balance. Uh, but there are pitchers that get to the big leagues, you know, basically just a fastball. Matt Thornton for a while was, you know, 75%, 80% fastballs, um, you know, kind of high velocity. Here it is. Good luck hitting it. Uh, had a really nice run of, you know, one of the better left-handed relievers in baseball with the White Sox. Um, so I think, you know, in general, that's the kind of one-pitch reliever we've seen. Rivera, Jansen, Mujica, these guys are a little different. It's not velocity that's uh, allowing them to destroy hitters. It's movement. Now, what about like uh, like Brad Lidge? Of course, was famous for his slider. At yeah. his peak, what, how often would he have been throwing that? I think Lidge was like a, about a fifty percent slider guy. There's actually guys in the last year, Sergio Romo, throws a ton of sliders. I think what we've seen is kind of the rise of the slider specialists. So you don't see a lot of guys like Lidge or Romo who you know throw sixty, seventy percent sliders in the closer role. You see these guys, uh, you know, pitching in setup opportunities a lot, where they can be matched up against same-handed hitters, and you know. Uh, I think that there's a decent amount of, uh, you know, specialists in baseball uh, who come in and throw 70% sliders in order to get same-handed hitters out. But then as soon as, you know, a, a run of opposite-handed hitters come up, they, they get pulled. Right. I, I remember uh, Jeff Nelson, I think. Maybe yeah. He played for some Mariners teams and also the Yankees. He would he was a right-handed specialist. Yeah, absolutely. He, he kind of dropped down. It wasn't sidearm, but he kind of stepped toward third base and threw a frisbee slider that basically started behind the hitter and ended up in the strike zone. Uh, really good against right-handers, really terrible against left-handers. And it, but but, a, but some pitchers can sort of transcend that, I guess, right? Somehow Romo is able, uh, has been able to, uh, to to be effective enough against left-handers um, such that he, he could take on the closer role. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is one of the, the things where maybe our terminology doesn't do every pitcher a uh, favor because there are different kinds of sliders. I mean, Jeff Nelson's slider was almost entirely horizontal. I mean, it went from one side of the batter's box to the other, so it was diving away from right-handers to dive in on left-handers. Romo's slider is much more up and down. I mean, it's not it's not up and down like a curveball necessarily, but there's a lot of vertical movement to Romo's slider, uh, and there's a decent amount of pitchers who throw sliders with a lot of vertical movement where, they, you know, it moves horizontally, but it also dives downwards. And it, you know, I think the key to a pitch that 
works against opposite-handed hitters is vertical movement. If you move it up and down, uh, it's not going to have a big platoon play. Or if you move it side to side, it probably is. You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that how we need to acknowledge the fact, or one one ought to acknowledge the fact that there are different types of sliders. I, I suppose if, especially recently, if I've been coming to any realizations, is that really, you know, pitchers say I throw this pitch, uh, yeah. I throw this pitch. But really, every pitcher is sort of a phenomenon unto himself in terms of pitch types, etc. Yeah. Uh, you could you could have two pitchers who throw the exact same pitch. They might call it different things, or yeah. and even more often, they say they both throw a slider, for example. But they're throwing very different pitches, right? Um, yeah. This is I don't know. This sort of seems like a, an area that's unplumbed at some level. Um, I think that probably Harry Pavlidis, uh, who does uh, a lot of work for Brooks Baseball classifying pitches. Um, would be a, a proponent of investigating this further, and certainly does. Uh, but this seems to be something that maybe goes a little bit under-acknowledged, especially in um, mainstream uh, work on, on pitches. You can say, oh, he throws a slider. I mean, sometimes from broadcasters you get, oh, that was a breaking ball, right, or that was an yeah. off-speed pitch, which is to say it was something that wasn't a fastball. Uh, yeah. I don't necessarily know what it was. But maybe just uh, – could you just, like, talk about that for a second, the sort of uh, – um, the sort of maybe – the fiction or, or the, the the myth of pitch types uh, as, like, being discrete things? Yeah, I mean, this might actually work on a decent segue, but this question came up last year at the Faber Seminar in Boston uh, where we kind of talked about, you know, what pitch classifications should actually be because, in general, pitchers kind of describe the pitches they throw as uh, based on the grip. I mean, how they hold the ball in the hand determines what kind of pitch it is to them. We don't care about the grip at all, really. I mean, it's kind of an interesting trivia point, but uh, all we really care about is how a pitch moves and um, what the hitter sees. We care much more about plot of the pitch on the way from the mound to the plate than we do about how the pitcher is holding it in his glove before he releases it. Uh, so, you know, where one pitcher might call a pitch a slider and another might call it a you know cutter, uh, those often can be very similar pitches. Someone might call it a slip-finger fastball and another throw it a cha- call it a changeup, but basically the same pitch. At that uh, conference, I suggested that maybe we just start calling everything fast or bendy, because mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, like bendy pitches, is, you know, kind of gets across the idea of what the ball does. I mean, you know, breaking ball, I guess, is the same idea, but bendy sounds a little more fun. Uh, and I think there are pitchers who throw, you know, a variety of bendy pitches. You Darvish has multiple pitches that do bendy kind of things. Instead of trying to say, oh, well, that's a cutter, that's a slider, maybe we should just say this is straight pitches, this is bendy pitches, this is pitches that fade. Uh, and I think, you know, kind of the terminology of pitch classifications um, is probably unhelpful in some ways where we're, you know, sim- saying this pitch is similar to that pitch because of how a, a pitcher holds the ball when it's not really similar in how it moves. I think we, we're much more interested in, in how a pitch moves and if we looked at it from that perspective uh, and cared less about, you know, the actual uh, name of what the pitcher calls it uh, or what it's been called historically, and we talked about pitches in terms of, you know, the hitter's perspective and what it does to the hitter on the way to the plate, uh, maybe that would be a better way to describe the pitches than, you know, fastball, slider, curve. But it's also, there's there's obviously some use to being able to to group certain pitchers to, pitches together. Like if Eno Saris, for example, wants to do a, a piece, at least starting to ask the question about what a slider does to a pitcher's arm as opposed to some other sorts of pitches, he needs to have some sort of basic definition of what a slider is. There's some sort of parameters in terms of, right, like a combination of velocity, horizontal, and vertical movement to be able to ask the question, right? Right. And it's not that I'm in favor of getting rid of pitch classification. 
I just wonder if, you know, maybe some of the terminology that baseball has used for a while is a little bit outdated. I mean, I think, you know, when you hear some guys calling the same pitch a splitter versus a changeup or a slider versus a cutter, um, you know, I mean, there's no question that they might be holding the ball differently, but in terms of what it actually does, I think that's what we should focus on, as less so, you know, what the pitcher themselves call it. Okay, yeah, all right. Now, uh, you did uh, mention that there's possibility for segue here. In fact, let's take advantage of it. Um, you you invoked the Sabre Seminar, uh, a discussion you'd had last year at Sabre Seminar. I believe that there is another one of those things happening. Uh, you will be attending uh, other, uh, at least a couple other names, certainly familiar to Fangraphs readers um, will will be attending as well. Um, can you talk? Can you talk about what this is and, and where it happens and what goes on there? Yeah, so it's uh, August seventeenth and eighteenth in Boston. It's uh, put on by Chuck Korb and Dan Brooks uh, of Brooks Baseball that we just discussed, um, and it's essentially in a, a two-day mini conference uh, with you know many of the smartest people in baseball. Uh, I will almost certainly be the dumbest person in the room. Um, you know, multiple PhDs neuroscientists, physicists, uh, you know, some really intelligent people uh, spending two days talking about very nerdy baseball things, um, but having really kind of interesting discussions on research and uh, things we can learn about the game, new ideas about the game. Um, and, you know, uh, I think overall it's maybe one of the most interesting um, opportunities to go talk about, uh, you know, maybe more of the, the thinking process behind what baseball players do and how they can do it better um, and, you know, maybe the best part of it at all is it's all for, for cancer research. They uh, give 100% of the registration fees to the Jimmy Fund. Uh, last year it was $17,000, a little over $17,000. Everybody who goes uh, to speak volunteers and uh, does not ask for payment or compensation for travel. So uh, we're all donating our time and expenses in order to help raise money to uh, uh, help the Jimmy Fund fight cancer. Now, uh, how, is it, how is this different uh – from or the same as the Sabre Analytics Conference, which took place, I guess, uh, early March in yeah. in uh, Phoenix. Well, I guess first of all, it's not taking place in March in Boston because that would that would be not yeah good. be cold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think the, I would say the main difference between the two is kind of the uh, the focus of them. So the Sabre Analytics Conference, I think, is maybe a little bit more. Um, widespread and and not quite as deep. So, um, you know, like at the Sabre Analytics Conference, you had uh, Brian Kenny and Joe Postansky and, um, you know, kind of these mainstream media types uh, talking about uh, the kinds of things that we talk about on a daily basis or discussions of war, fielding metrics, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that is kind of the mainstream current topic of the day in baseball analytics. The Sabre Seminar, I think, is much more uh, in-depth on a narrower scope. So there's probably not going to be too many discussions uh, about, you know, how we calculate war. I mean, someone might ask a question at some point. But I think, in general, the focus is going to be much more on the uh, actual science of baseball. And so, you know, you can have Alan Nathan is going to be there probably providing some kind of uh, physics demonstration or uh, presentation on how pitches move or some things related to the physics of baseball. Uh, there's uh, Glenn Fleissig of the uh, ASMI Institute is going to talk about pitcher injuries and mechanics. Uh, I think things are going to be kind of much more along the lines of um, science-based, uh, you know, physics, um, almost an educational kind of experience rather than a 
uh, wide-ranging discussion on the kind of the things that get talked about in baseball tonight. Yeah, so it's, it sort of sounds like the, the, uh, it function the way like a like a scholarly conference might, right? Yeah. Where it's like right. we're all you know French PhDs and we go to this conference and there's papers delivered and conversations, yeah. sort of on the uh, trying to trying to push the uh, research in, in one direction. Yes, I think the research is much more of a focus. Uh, at this time. I mean, there's research presentations at the Saber Analytics Conference, mm-hmm. uh, but I think these ones uh, at the, the Saber Seminar will probably be a little more academic in nature uh, and, you know, maybe a little more uh, knowledge required in order to understand them. It, I think it's just a, maybe a little less, um, maybe more of a 201, where if the Saber Analytics Conference is uh, Saber 101, this is maybe more of a 201 or 301. Right. Well, there's there's different purposes, right? As you, you mentioned, like, Brian Kenny might be at the other one. Yeah. Like, kind of Brian Kenny, like, his sort of role is to, I think, digest some of the more complex ideas, right, and then and then present them for a larger audience. Right. And it sounds like what you're discussing now is like these might be like the things that are discussed at the Saber seminar. Those might be some of the ideas that are present, you know, that that, that Brian Kenny is digesting in a in a year or two from now and presenting in a, in, a, in, a, in a, um, a medium that would get a lot more eyes and ears. Right. I mean, I think this is probably more of the actual analytics versus the discussion of. Uh, you know, how that those analytics still mainstream or what's the best way to present them. This is going to be much more along the lines of, um, you know, here's this really interesting, you know, scientific thing that we're discussing that might help us understand the game more versus how we're presenting that to the mass audience. Now, a word that, t- that takes a, uh, a place of some importance in this, because this is, in fact, the, the conference is called um, – the seminar is called Sabermetric Scouting and the Science of Baseball. And I guess it yeah. actually it brings up a point both re- with regard to this and, and, and to the, some of the more recent developments in, you know, um, sort of baseball analytics, which is that the I, we're getting closer always to a point where the uh, what we're looking at or we're able to sort of capture the, the process. We're getting closer and closer to describing what players are doing um, using yeah. technology. I mean, so for example, uh, Dan Brooks runs Brooks Baseball, which is a, a, a nice resource for uh, pitch FX information. Um, but of course, pitch FX information is just, it's essentially scouting, but, you know, using yeah. rather precise measurements um, to, to do so. And of course, also with some of the pitfalls that come along with technology, which is what are we exactly recording here? Or, you know, are the instruments correctly calibrated, et cetera? But it seems like that's, that is uh, certainly one branch of, I guess we could say the science of sabermetrics, is certainly going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, baseball analysts have done a really good job over the last 20 years of kind of quantifying the outcomes. And we kind of, you know, we understand what the run value difference between a double and a triple is at this point. And, you know, um, you know even with things that are, more difficult to evaluate, like defense or pitching, and how you separate those two things. I think we have a, a pretty decent outcome, a pretty decent idea of, of measuring the outcomes. Uh, what we've had less of an access to really before the pitch effects era is the process stats, as you noted, velocity movement, uh, the kinds of things that, um, you know, I think really help understand what, what the players do uh, and why they do it. And, you know, I remember like a few years ago, or maybe five years ago at this point, I believe it was John Walsh who published a study in the Hardball Times Annual uh, that dealt with platoon splits by pitch type. 
And this was like a revolutionary idea. I mean, like, and, uh, you know, players in baseball certainly knew this. And, you know, what we've seen is through pitch usage, the pitchers certainly understand, uh, understood even before any of the research was really done, uh, what pitches worked specifically against what types of hitters. And, uh, but for the, the analytical community, I don't think we really knew how big the platoon split was on the slider, for instance, or, um, you know, how the changeup really did work against opposite handed hitters. I think these are the things that really, um, were crystallized by pitch effects data. And so, um, I think that a lot of the more interesting research the last couple of years and a lot of kind of the new frontier has been understanding why players do what they do and maybe focus on, uh, helping craft their skills versus just roster construction and management decisions. Now, um, looking at these pitch effects, um, Questions or concerns. Um, we're, we're reminded also of uh, another related t- uh, topic or idea, a concept that might be sort of uh, right now on the uh, on the frontiers of research here, and that's the question of pitch framing. Yeah. This will be the last uh, question with which I bother you. Uh, of course, Mike Fast did a study. What's that's going on? What two years now? Three years now? Couple years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, which in, you know, uh, partly which you know that study might be why he's now. Uh, I don't know if he's, he's not the property of, of the Houston Astros, but uh, he's compensated by them not to share uh, any of his findings. Um, so Mike Fast did, did this work and with some startling uh, suggestions about um, the degree to which pitch saving or pitch framing could be saving runs uh, for yeah. teams, um, essentially, or stealing runs for teams is another way you could yeah. you could phrase it. And of course, uh, players, players like Jose Molina. Um, who now probably not coincidentally is employed by the Tampa Bay Rays, um, it, you know, is, came, was well acquitted by by that study. Uh, also, Jonathan Lucroy, I think, um, in the Milwaukee Brewers, a couple other guys, and then of course uh, there was the other end of uh, yeah. I forget all the names now, but some some pitchers you might expect. I think maybe Mike Napoli did not do particularly well. Ryan Dumit is kind of the uh, the poster boy of why pitch framing can uh, lead you off of a position. Right. Yeah. And uh, Ryan Dumit, of course, has his virtues, and maybe a you know occasional catcher is one of them. Uh, probably not um, in a full-time capacity, though. It's probably not any benefit to your team, and uh, something that you know historically maybe even our version of WAR has overrated him because it's hard to express in negative runs what he's doing as a catcher. Um, yeah. I, oh, go ahead. No, no. I, I will wait for you to finish. All I right. will defer. All right. Thank you. So the point is, though. Uh, since Fast Study and then uh, up to the present moment, well, of course, Jeff Sullivan does a lot of work uh, at our site on pitch framing and uh, sort of in tandem with uh, an- scads of animated GIFs, uh, you know, we'll look at, uh, what, you know, give us a visual idea of what that looks like. And then uh, yeah. leading up to the present moment, this past week, Ben Lindbergh of Baseball Prospectus published for Grantland a sort of uh, scouting slash uh, sabermetrics type of uh, piece, I think, uh, focusing mostly on Francisco Cervelli and Chris Stewart and yeah. what their value might currently be to the Yankees because uh, we would expect a team like the Yankees to pay top dollar in the free agent market, uh, but for some reason they've, you know, they've stayed with these uh, this pair of pitchers who seem underwhelming and, uh, you know, the question is why. It might have something to do with pitch framing. Um, you were asked in your most recent chat about pitch framing, and you said that you think that, I think if I'm wrong, I would love to hear you elaborate on this. A, I think it's important. B, we might be over enthusiastic about uh, over enthusiastic about it at the time uh, at the at the present moment. 
Yeah, I mean, I think anytime there's uh, kind of new and interesting research, it tends to get uh, explored very heavily, and, you know, uh, a lot of focus can be on it. And I think, you know, the pitch framing stuff is kind of exciting, interesting uh, quantification of things that scouts have been saying for a really long time. I mean, there's always been guys coming up through the minors who scouts said, you know, this guy can't catch, we hate the way he receives. Uh, you know, like Carlos Santana, I think, is a good example of this, of a guy who can really hit uh, sabermetric uh, analysts have like for a really long time the scouts have said you know this guy belongs with DH or first base or something this guy is a, a terrible defensive catcher is really hurting his pitching staff uh, and now with the framing kind of metrics we can actually show that the scouts have been right all along Carlson Gina really is a, a terrible pitch framer and it really is one of the reasons why the Indian pitching staff has not been very good the last few years is because they've been throwing the guy who uh, you know convinces umpires to call strikes balls and call ball strikes but doesn't convince them to call ball strikes and so um, you know, I think it's certainly uh, an area of baseball that has been um, underexplored and, and is really kind of at the, the forefront of analysis right now. Um, I think my hesitation is in the uh, uh, scale of, of credit that we're giving to the guys on the extreme ends. And so I think, you know, like some of the studies have shown, uh, Max Markey, for, for instance, I think showed that Jose Molina uh, was worth 40 or 50 runs in pitch framing a couple of years ago. Uh, for me, that's um, sort of difficult to reconcile with a lot of the studies that have been done previously. Uh, granted, they're a little bit older, but you know, it's not that the idea of catcher-pitcher interaction has not been studied. Keith Wilmer, who now works for the Indians, did a lot of work on this uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and really found very little difference in how pitchers perform based on the catchers they were throwing to overall. And so you know, when we're talking about the effects of pitch framing, uh, yeah, I think it's tough on one hand to say that you know a guy like Jose Molina could be worth 40 or 50 runs just in this one skill uh, when most of the studies that have been done on uh, pitcher performance by uh, catcher tandem uh, have shown that there's actually not a huge difference in overall results. And so you know if you're if you're finding a 40 or 50 run skill in one aspect, I think you would almost have to be able to find it in the overall performance of pitchers when Jose Molina's behind the plate. But if you actually look at the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, since Jose Molina joined them, they've done better when pitching to Jose Lobaton than they have to Jose Molina. Uh, certainly there's a sample size issue, uh, a selection bias issue, but I think if it was really a 40 to 50 run scale as has been suggested, we would see it in the results. Oh yeah, that's, that's interesting, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's going back to the, the concept of catcher ERA, which has been around... Right. I mean, I know that, uh, yeah, yeah, Bill James in his in his early, you know, in his abstracts was looking at catcher ERA, uh, maybe occasionally yeah. uh, making strong conclusions from it. But I think ultimately, yeah, we've found, as you noted, that um, catcher ERA is generally not moving uh, greatly. The, the the spectrum is pretty limited. Yeah, the range. Yeah, I think that what we've seen is the range has been small, and and it's certainly. There's all kinds of problems with catcher ERA. I mean, you know, Charlie O'Brien had a great catcher ERA for a really long time because he was the personal catcher for Greg Maddox, and he didn't catch anybody else. So, you know, I think just the fact that you're constantly catching the best pitcher in baseball, uh, you know, there's an issue there, and it makes it hard to evaluate, especially when one pitcher throws to one catcher 95% of the time. Uh, you know, it makes it difficult to do kind of a with or without you title analysis. But I think, um, you know, at this point, uh, we have large enough sample size with some of these guys that we've been able to identify as pitch framers. And I think when they switch teams, you know, go to a new location, and the pitching staff, if they're a really good pitch framer, uh, you know, 
doesn't take a giant step forward, we, we can wonder why the skill that we think we've identified as a 40 or 50 run thing uh, isn't making itself manifest in the results. It's not that, you know, when Jose Molina uh, went to the Tampa Bay Rays that everyone on their staff took a giant step forward. Uh, you know, I think if this skill was as, as dominant as, as some claims have made, we would see more obvious results from that skill. And so my theory, uh, you know, I can't necessarily prove this, I wouldn't be surprised if in, you know, time we, we looked and saw that maybe when a pitcher has a really good framer behind the plate, he just pitches differently. So if you know that your catcher is going to get you strikes on the edge of the strike zone, you don't have to throw as many pitches over the plate. You're all, we're giving the pitcher essentially credit for turning those balls into strikes, but we're not looking at what the pitcher is doing on the non-marginal pitches and maybe the catcher, the pitcher is just missing the zone more often because he knows he's got a guy who can kind of get in pitches on the margins so he doesn't have to throw it over the plate as often. Or vice versa, if you're a really terrible framer back there, the pitcher is probably aware of that. Maybe he throws uh, more pitches in the strike zone and fewer pitches on the margins, uh, you know, which you can say might lead to more hits and more runs, but if they it, it would also lead to fewer walks. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of interconnected issues here or if you just look at the, the plays on the margins, it's probably not capturing the full effect of, of having a framer behind the plate. Yeah, so a lot of things to do about it. This happens, though, right? Anytime, and as you noted, anytime a, a, a sort of uh, uh, idea around that comes comes out that you can apply um, in a number of different ways or really get into, I mean, you know, uh, certainly when the, the, the original idea of Moneyball was invented or was, you know, um, put forth, a lot of people get really excited about walks and home runs, right? And then yeah. uh, sort of running contrary to that, uh, there was another wave in which defense became more interesting. We could we began to be able not only to adjust for a player's position, but even maybe with a large enough sample, we could have some ideas about how many runs a, a player or at least a team was worth defensively in the field. And, uh, you know, now we have a, maybe another extension of that, right? And I think that there is uh, – as you know, there's maybe there is a lot of zeal to apply a concept to really immerse oneself in one's concept and maybe give too much credit to that concept uh, um, when it's a when it's a new idea. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's certainly, I don't want to sound like the guy who thinks pitch framing uh, isn't important. I mean, I think that there's certainly a skill here, and what we've generally witnessed in other positions is that there's probably somewhere around a plus twenty to minus twenty uh, range at which teams will put up with a player. Uh, you know, if you get down to kind of negative 20 or so, uh, they generally move you to an easier position. If you're plus 20 or so and you're not playing shortstop or center field, you, maybe you get promoted. Uh, and I think what we've seen is teams have done a pretty good job of kind of uh, putting guys where they belong uh, in, in those plus to minus 20 buckets. And I wouldn't be shocked if, uh, you know, I would. it would be much easier for me to accept uh, that, you know, the range of catcher defense was in that plus 20 to minus 20. And, you know, the catcher's involved in more plays, maybe even plus 25 to minus 25, uh, plus 50 to minus 50, just in terms of this one specific skill, not even counting blocking balls in the dirt or throwing out runners. That's a little harder for me to believe. Okay. And I and I don't know if I mentioned it before, but the uh, we were talking about the Sabre Seminar. That takes place August 17th and 18th in Boston. August 17th to the 18th, and the correct, uh, the URL is saberseminar.com. It's saber, S-A-B-E-R, S-A-B-E-R, saberseminar.com. And you will be there. And uh, Dave Allen, who uh, yep. has written for Fangraphs and is a, is a really excellent guy, is going to be there too. So that's... Uh, and, and Bill Petty. I think there's going to be three Fangraphs people presenting or talking in some kind of official capacity. I would, I would guess that Darko Lord might be there. 
Uh-oh. Who lives in Boston might show up. Uh, I think you'll, you'll see a decent amount of Fangraphs people at the photo. And actually, uh, I'd like to say that I will be in the Boston area on those dates, or at least somewhere in there. Um, maybe are you, you going to just be in the Boston area, or are you actually going to come to the event? Well, before I knew of the – I was going definitely to be in the Boston area. I'm going to be uh, – this is a conversation we need to have, Cameron, but I'm going to be on the East Coast uh, around that time is the point. Okay. Um, well, we will either see you or – or not to you, depending on your attendance. Those are the, right. Those are the two options. Um, yes. Thank you, Dave Kimber. You've uh, fulfilled your obligation to uh, Fangraphs Audio this week, unless you think that there's something else that uh, needs saying that has not been said. Uh, no, I think I have maybe said all that I have to say. Okay. Dave Cameron says all he has to say. That's going to be this week. Um, that's this week's title. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Thanks, Carson. Yeah, that's it. Again, I'm Carson Testoulay. This has been Fangraphs Audio.